I want to tell you about someone named Carlo Ancelotti. He is a legend. But in the United States, we don't really hear about him all that much. It's because he was a soccer player, a professional soccer player, and now a coach. Or I should say he was a football player and a football coach. That's what the rest of the world calls him. He was a great player, but then he became a legendary coach, one of the most winning coaches in the history of international soccer. He has coached teams such as AC Milan, Chelsea, Paris Saint-Germain, Bayern Munich, and Everton. Those may not mean much to most of us. They don't mean much to most American ears. But he basically coached the best soccer teams in Europe, and with some of them, they experienced some of their most winning years in the history of their football clubs, all legendary winning football clubs known for winning championships. And still, with Ancelotti as their coach, many of them experienced their best years. Now, in 2016, Ancelotti wrote a book about what he learned in all of his years as a coach, and it was not what people were expecting. He turned intuition about being a coach on its head again and again, every chapter as he explained what he had learned from being a coach over many years. And you see, what he had learned, he learned the hard way. It required making mistakes, repairing relationships, accepting losses. And the most fascinating thing about this book is that he invited his star players from each team to write a response to each of the chapters. A brave coach. It turns out that to be among one of the world's greatest soccer coaches, one's actions, according to Ancelotti, always comes back to humility. It means putting players first. It means building a culture of trust and asking players and management to participate in that culture as well. It means listening and empowering. It means taking responsibility for oneself, and it means being open to always learning, always growing, always changing. It means working together and putting other people first. And if one looks at Ancelotti's championships, it might be difficult to see what was behind winning all of these matches because it took more than one person, Ancelotti explains, it took more than one person taking on these behaviors. Ancelotti was a coach to the players, yes, but also to managers and owners who he invited into joining him in creating a different culture in his soccer teams. He asked all of these people to sacrifice with him in order to achieve their goals. In his book, Ancelotti writes that there are many teams in all of sports who have great players 
who never win titles. And these players are rarely willing to sacrifice for the team. The funny thing is that in the end, Ancelotti says, this lack of propensity to sacrifice only makes the individual goals difficult. He goes on to say, there is something that I absolutely believe in, and that is if you think and act as part of a team, the individual recognitions will come by themselves. Talent wins games, but teamwork and intelligence win championships. According to Ancelotti, to be great requires humility, sacrifice, putting the team before self, and ultimately a culture of teamwork. And as he acknowledges, it's really simple to say, and it's really hard to do. Now this fall, our worship series is centered on some unexpected wisdom that we overhear as Jesus teaches what it is like to live in the kingdom of God, what it means to participate in the kingdom of God. And as Jesus teaches the disciples about life in the kingdom of God, it becomes clear that a kingdom way of thinking, that is, thinking the way God might be thinking, is more often about how people live in relationship in this world more than it is about a place to be revealed hereafter. Life in the kingdom of God, as Jesus teaches it, transforms people to live in relationships that build one another up, that provide what is needed for people to flourish individually and together. And an experience in the kingdom of God will reorient our lives to focus on being disciples, on doing the work of discipleship together, and intelligence, the emotional intelligence to become the people and the church who God has called us to be. Now, this morning's scripture is a case study in individual self-preservation. That is, individual preservation versus working for the good of an entire community. It's a story about looking out for one's own self. The disciples, James and John, they go to Jesus and say, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you to do. Now, if we stopped right there for a minute, how many of us, based on our life experience, think this is going to go well for James and John? I hear some grumbling. We know, don't we? When push comes to shove, even Jesus says, that their request is not his to grant. In all honesty, I don't really blame James and John. 
You see Jesus' story after story through the Gospel of Mark leading up to this one keeps, well, he's dropping hints and he's just outright saying that they are heading to Jerusalem for a reason, and that reason is crucifixion. The disciples may not fully understand it or get it, but it is fear-inducing. It is anxiety-making. And the anxiety among the disciples, the fear among the disciples, is rising higher and higher as they make their way closer and closer to Jerusalem. And Jesus keeps telling them what is to come, and it sounds difficult, if not outright dreadful. But they do not understand yet the new life and resurrection is to come. We have the privilege of, of knowing the gift of Easter that is to come. They do not. Well, they do, but they don't get it. Jesus keeps dropping hints, and they, they don't hear it, but they are afraid. They are anxious, and they are acting out of this fear and anxiety. Now, then there's the other ten disciples. They hear about this request, right? And our Bible says that they are getting angry with James and John. They are becoming indignant. And the ten are ready to say, you are about to secure yourselves at the expense of others, at the expense of us, some community of disciples you turned out to be. Now, before the anger of the ten can reach a tantrum level of reaction, Jesus calls them together for a little bit of coaching. Jesus brings them over to learn about what it means to be a diakonos. Now, diakonos is a Greek word. It is the biblical word for servant. It is the word that our Bible, as we read it, translates as servant. And the biblical word diakonos gives us the foundation for our understanding of what it means to be a deacon in the church. And while we call people to a specific ministry of deacon in our congregation, Jesus, in Scripture, calls all of us to lives of being a diaconos. Now, diaconos shares in service on behalf of someone who is considered a superior, hence the translation of a servant. Now, this does not mean that people are expected to submit to injustice. It doesn't mean that we accept abuses of power or unethical authority. But a diaconos is expected to make themselves humble in a relationship, and as Jesus uses it, it is a humble relationship to God. And what Jesus does as he gathers these disciples all around him is that he transforms that word diakonos into a powerful metaphor for this kind of relationship, for a relationship that defines what it means to be a disciple in the kingdom of God. Now, diakonos in the kingdom of God shares in service on behalf of Jesus. 
A diakonos is a person who gives themselves to nurture and build up people in the name of Christ. Whoever wishes to be great among you, Jesus says, must be a diakonos. And Jesus says, whoever wishes to be first among you must be diakonos of all. And Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. As Jesus puts it, if you want to win the hearts and minds, or perhaps in the context of soccer championships, one must be diakonos. So to live as this kind of servant, to live as a diakonos, means to live as one who gives themselves for building up and supporting people around them. It means to be a servant of grace. For the last shall be first, and many who are first will become last, Jesus teaches. And you can almost hear the ten disciples turning to James and John in their indignation, pulling out their self-righteousness to say, yeah, you two, start being a diakonos. And it's easy to create an expectation for others while ignoring Jesus' call for our own lives. The moment that we point to someone else before examining ourselves is the sure sign that we've missed the point. For just as Jesus gives himself to the ministry of healing and forgiving and offering compassion, we too renew life for others. When we too are willing to be for another what Jesus is for us. For just as Carlo Ancelotti says, if you think and act as part of a team, the individual recognitions will come by themselves. All of this, being a diakonos, starts with Jesus. And then it continues with ourselves. And then transformed to be a diagonos in the kingdom of God, it continues on as we reach out to people near to us. So when the disciples pray, your kingdom come, when we pray, your kingdom come, it means that those disciples and we as the church are empowered to be a part of cultivating people who heal and forgive and restore. To be great in the kingdom of God as Jesus describes it, we work for the well-being of the entire body of Christ, not just ourselves. It means that we sometimes support decisions that are, are not exactly what we wanted, but we know are good for the community. It means that we can trust that there will be others forming and shaping into being diaconos, servants of Jesus in the church, if we are willing to make the effort to be one ourselves. I believe that this is our quiet strength as a church. 
It's a quiet strength because it is something that can transform people without even speaking a word. You see, the kingdom of, kingdom of God is encountered most powerfully when it is embodied in us and the relationships we share. And it is Jesus who calls and empowers the church for this kind of ministry. When we seek to be healthy ourselves, so that there is healing and wholeness in our own lives, we will be able to serve others so that they too experience these gifts from Jesus. If we are willing to say to our neighbor honestly, I forgive you, and then our neighbor will know what it is like to be forgiven and so too how to forgive. If we seek to serve Christ, then others will see what it looks like to be a disciple in their own lives. Now one could call this good stewardship of our faith. For stewards give of who they are and what they have, and when it comes to our lives of faith as diakonos, we seek to share our faith rather than to hide it. And one, too, might say that this scripture this story of James and John and the response of the ten and Jesus calling them together for this moment of learning, one might say that Jesus is offering the original lesson on servant leadership. It's all the rage in business magazines, has been for years. But what it means coming from the scripture is that Jesus is empowering us to bring our quiet strength to others, modeling faith as people who are diokonos. So where people know the anxiety, the fear, the unexpected trials that life can bring and not knowing how to respond to them, this quiet strength of a diagnosis can change the conversation. Fear and anxiety in one met with care and compassion from another can change the conversation toward empathy and well-being. For such a powerful change does not come from individual greatness but a humble awareness that we belong to God and that we, too, belong to one another. And to live with this awareness opens the door to entering into the kingdom of God just a little bit wider. And it can all begin with that quiet strength of a community of servant leaders, a community of disciples, a community of diakonos. All this can change lives beginning with Jesus and beginning with our own. Reading the scripture this week reminded me of a great prayer of faith 
one that has been meaningful for me for most of my life. It's a great prayer by St. Francis of Assisi. You may know it. But it speaks to the strength of a community of faith full of people who are willing to serve in humble and compassionate ways. Let us close with a word of prayer, with a prayer by St. Francis of Assisi. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. Grant that I may not so much seek to be understood as to understand. Grant that I may not so much seek to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.